everybody to Overdue Rentals, the podcast where we talk about films that people are just no longer talking about enough anymore. <laughs> I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Blends Mike Reyes. Uh, you can't tell we're friends here at all. <laughs> well, you know, nobody can tell anything anymore because there's a lot of secrecy about nowadays, Ooh. which, you know, kind of fits into our, our guest's lineage of film. Wait. Today, oh, Matthew. Yes. Is today outfit part two? Today is outfit part two. Ooh. Co-writer and director Graham Moore. Who you know, else? I could have yes. sworn I thought I, I could have sworn I saw this coming. You saw it coming? You you heard about it? Did, I, I guessed. Did I guessed. Tell you? I, was, I was hoping it, well, I can neither confirm nor deny that. Uh, but I can confirm that the outlet uh, uh outfit. Yeah, we're just a bunch of wordplay and son of a guns today. Uh, I can confirm that I believe when this is going out to you, the outfit should be in theaters this very moment. And uh, I don't think we have to tell you, but we're going to tell you, go see it. Oh yeah, go see it. I, you know, this is one of those films where, you know what? I'll talk about it after, I think. Because we also have Graham with us to talk about his Academy Award-winning written script, The Imitation Game. And so there's a lot to talk about. So maybe we'll save a lot of that talk for later. Yes, indeed. Um, and just in case you're all of a sudden hyped up on outfit mania, uh, you want to go to your nearest tailor and, and get dressed and go see this film, but you'd like to hear a little more about it from your pals at Overdue Rentals, don't forget that we also have an episode with one of the film stars, Dylan O'Brien, which you can find in our back catalog. And you know what? I, I'm confident that this is going to be just as fun as the, and just as insightful as that talk. So, uh, Matthew, shall we let Graham in? Graham Moore, please come on in to the Overdue Rental Shop. Welcome to the counter. Do you want some stale popcorn? Okay, save that for our finest guests. Hey, Graham, how's it going? Uh, it's good. Uh, such a pleasure to talk to you guys today. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, thank you for joining us. We're excited to have you here. Um, I don't want to put too much pressure on you, Graham, but you're the first person we've actually talked to in the same room. Yeah, we're all usually different places. Oh my God, you two seem so happy to be around each other right now. I can see the joy in your smiles and your postures. Does it feel, does it feel like coming home? Yeah, yeah, it really does. Because uh, long story short, we met on the, the the circuit and then just decided to start doing overdue rentals together. And yeah, that just, it came out of the pandemic and this is the first time we've been together. And I can't think of a better movie to put us together than the outfit yeah. because oh oh man well, uh, i really like this movie thank you so much for saying that really honestly it, uh, you just brightened my morning i'm so glad you liked it so much well I'm, I'm gonna jump in and talk very specifically also again since this is like the big feature-length directorial debut for you this what you did some amazing stuff as far as blocking this thing together there are things that are that like people may not recognize they're not realizing that you're you're, you're kind of playing with them a little bit, the way this is staged. And it was, I was just so appreciative of it, of it. Did you like overly overthink it sometimes to yourself or just came naturally? <laughs> um, I don't think anything in the filmmaking process comes naturally, at least not to me. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know, maybe for Steven Spielberg, it just kind of happens. Or you've been doing it for long enough that you just sort of show up and know instantly what to do. Um, but no, for me, I'm, I'm sort of a meticulous planner by nature. And then I think the aesthetics of this film 
and what we knew we wanted it to look like, how we knew we wanted it to feel, suggested that this was a film that would particularly require lots and lots of planning. So hopefully that worked out well with my natural tendencies anyway. Um, you know, I, my co-writer, Jonathan McLean and I had acted out and sort of blocked out versions of all the scenes in the movie in my house long before we were with Mark Rylance, long before we were ever in rehearsals with the actor. Um, I think when I first started talking to Dick Pope, our wonderful cinematographer, um, in hindsight, this is a little bit embarrassing. I think I sent him a 300 page lookbook and storyboard and sort of visual guide to the movie. And Dick, who has been shooting beautiful films literally since before I was born, uh, I think sort of called me and said, all right, kid, settle down there. We can, this is, this is a lot of prep. Let's, let's, let's just have some conversations about color for a second. Um, but no, I think, you know, it's a movie, right? It's about a tailor. It's about a, or as he would put it, a cutter. It's about this expert craftsperson. And he's a guy with his own sense of aesthetics. And so I think we knew very early on that the film had to kind of look and feel like it was one of these beautiful bespoke suits that he would make. Um, he could kind of guide our process that way. So from camera to blocking, to color, to sound, to music, in a way, the goal was to reflect, use all these elements to reflect the aesthetics of, of our main character. Yeah, there was, there was very specifically, you know, like, I remember sitting there watching it and there's that scene, I guess, when, um, when Johnny and English are, are, are really, they're starting to do the, do the sharing the cigarette and you mm. see him walk by and there's the mirror behind them, which of course we know why the mirror is there, but the way it was, the way it was set out was just so beautiful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. that is a, a, an excellent little detail to pick up on. I'm so touched that you guys picked up on that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, and in some ways the fact that we were able to build this set on a soundstage completely from scratch um, meant that we had complete control over it. We could, we could design the, the set according to the kinds of blocking motions we wanted to perform with the cast and vice versa. Um, I think, you know, for me, maybe the most fun and exciting week of the whole filmmaking process was our week of rehearsals right before we started shooting. Um, we, had, we had moved into our sound stages in London and the set, we were all kind of bubbled up because of COVID, this was about a year ago. Uh, the set was being built on the first floor and uh, then me and the actors would spend our days in a rehearsal room on the second floor, trying out the scenes, playing games, doing experiments, sort of trying out different things. You know, Mark comes from a, Mark Rylance, who's our lead character, comes from a, a theater background. And so he loves these kind of rehearsal periods and sort of mm -hmm. playing around with the other actors. So we had this week where I would spend most of the day in a rehearsal room with the actors. And then around about five o'clock, usually the painters would finish up downstairs and me and the actors could come downstairs and um, start trying out some of the things we were doing in the rehearsal room on set with no lights, no camera, no one else around us, no producers or financiers allowed, just me and my co-writer and the actors uh, kind of playing and trying things and doing, you know, a day in the tailor shop. Let's, I'm going to walk in and be a customer and Mark will measure me for a suit. And, you know, just doing sort of little exercises and things that he feels comfortable in the space so that, yeah. you know, if he opens up a drawer, he knows exactly what's inside. So Mark knows the contents of every single drawer everywhere in the shop. And so what, what that allows us to do, though, is that if there are things in blocking that we discovered through this process, through, through, that we discovered through experimentation with the actors, the set was still being built. So we could start changing bits of the set around bits of blocking we knew we wanted to use. So it could be kind of a fluid process of 
designing shots with, uh, with Dick, my cinematographer, designing blocking with Mark and the other actors, and then designing the set with our wonderful designer, Gemma, so they could all sort of be changing each other at the same time. There's this beautiful metaphor that's mentioned in the film that really does play towards the experience of making a film where uh, Leonard is sort of talking about, oh, well, most people think of a suit as just two pieces, but really it's all these different sections that get cut and get measured and then eventually put together into this beautiful whole. And uh, just listening to the sort of bespoke process you got to go into with rehearsals and blocking and building this set, it's just, it, it couldn't be more, more fitting. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Yeah, that was really the goal, that it felt, everything felt intentional. Um, you know, because everything that that character does is intentional. I mean, it comes from a place of character and psychology um, and sort of, for me and for Mark, spending a lot of time with master tailors, master cutters, these master craftsmen. I'm so obsessed with these people who spend their lives, decades and decades, training to perform, to perfect these extremely esoteric crafts. I think it's such a, a fascinating thing. And in some ways, you know, Mark is sort of like that as an actor, right? He's spent decades and decades of his life just masterfully perfecting this one craft of acting. Um, and so I think we, I think he sort of identified with the character in some way. And, and I mean, our whole, all of our department heads were such kind of, you know, masters of their own, their own crafts. It was exciting to get to, to, to get to bring them all on something that was in some ways very small, right? It was very contained. There was this, it all takes place on one big set. There are seven speaking parts in the entire film. Um, you know, we would joke sometimes even about the gunshots with our sound team. There's, there are nine gunshots in this movie. That's all there are. Um, and our sound team, it's funny, had just come from, uh, they just come from doing No Time to Die, where, where there are significantly more than nine gunshots <laughs> over the course of the film. Um, and, and we talked so much about uh, this, how do we make every gunshot feel shocking and feel upsetting? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, if you're really around these gangsters in this tight space in the fifties with these guns, it would be the gunshots sound unpleasant because it would be unpleasant to be around them. Um, so I think it was exciting to get to bring that level of care and consideration to every single department. For the story itself, from where you first originally came up with it to where it ended up, I'm wondering how much changed because in some ways as a viewer seeing it for the first time, I start to first think of it as like, oh, maybe I'm just getting a new version of the Telltale Heart at some point. And then as things unfold, you just realize that you're just being dragged almost by these characters down this mystery until it finally gives itself up. And I'm wondering how much of that changed. It's a great question. I think, you know, we knew, we knew early on what the story was and we certainly did a thousand drafts of the script before um, we were playing around with actors. I mean, I I don't even number my drafts as a writer because I there are just so many. We just it, I just label them by day because every single day it changes. I mean, every kind of day of working on the film, <laughs> the script changed because someone had an idea for something or we would try things. I do a lot of kind of experiments and games and exercises. Let's try a version where this happens. Let's try a version where that happens. If we don't like it, we can just throw it out. Mm -hmm. um, and I really kind of believe in that process. Um, you know, we knew by the time we were shooting, by the time we were in rehearsals, we knew what the story was. I mean, the script was pretty well solidified. Um, and as, as you were just saying, you know, the idea was to create this kind of 
amalgamation of some of my favorite kind of Hitchcockian mm. thrillers of the 40s and 50s and this kind of great noir gangster filmmaking um you know from from Hitchcock's Rope or Lifeboat um to 12 Angry Men which I just clearly worship um uh, and with Rope I don't want to give it away on the podcast we have some pretty direct references to Rope that occur in the middle of the film that are sort of hard to miss if you know it um we use it as an example of, of a great place to, to hide a corpse. Um, but I think, you know, things got to change a little through the filming process in that um, we shot in order. So we started, okay. day one was the first scene and day 24, our last day of shooting was the last scene. Um, we had this idea, because we were all on one big set, I realized that we had this opportunity to shoot the film completely in order which I had never done before. I think none of the actors ever done it before. Um, when I called Mark and said, hey, I think, you know, on a, on a typical film, there's all these cost savings you get by shooting out of order, but we're just in the same place every day with the same people. So we can shoot it in any order we want to. And I'd love to actually just start at the first scene and go all the way through it. Hmm. And he got really excited about it. And the rest of the cast got really excited about it. And what that meant was that if, if Mark did something in an improv, you know, on day four of shooting, we weren't locked into something. We hadn't already shot the ending. You know, we weren't, we, the actors strangely had much more freedom because we shot an order yeah. to play around with stuff and to try a different version of a scene or even not just different dialogue, but a different sort of emotional tenor for a scene. What if I'm more angry here? What if I'm more sad here? What if I'm more reticent here? Um, and they wouldn't, it's not as, it was never as if, oh, we've already shot the scene after that. So, sorry, you can't get too hot-headed here because then it's not going to match, you know, you're walking through the door into the next scene. Um, we could just change that and recalibrate. So it allowed us, um, strangely, I think that was one of our examples of, of embracing some of the constraints of this film and turning them into advantages. Well, since we are here on Overdue Rentals, uh, not that we don't want to talk about the outlet, uh, the outfit. I keep mixing up the outfit <laughs> and the outlet, especially just because, you know, the junket process, but the, as much as we want to keep talking about the outfit, there is another film that we feel needs a little more spotlight thrown on it, which is surprising considering the pedigree that it comes from, yeah. and that is The Imitation Game. And I think I just wanted to start with uh, what initially brought you to the idea of adapting uh, Alan Turing the Enigma into uh, a Hollywood screenplay. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm so glad you, we're, we're getting to talk about Imitation Game again. It's been, it's been a few years, but I still am deeply proud of that film. It's um, so gorgeous. Yeah, it really is. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, and honestly, I mean, I learned so much making that film, which I wrote but did not direct. My, my dear friend Morton Tilden directed it. And, you know, he was so wonderful about embracing me into that filmmaking process. I was with him on set every day. I was in those rehearsals with the actors every day. I was in post uh, every other day. You know, I was so much of a part of that process. And, and a handful of people from that team came to join me on the outfit that um, it felt like in some sense a much smoother tra transition um, thanks to Morton's generosity. Um, but I think to answer your question, Imitation came about because I'd always, since I was a kid, been obsessed with the story of Alan Turing. Um, you know, I was, I know it's gonna be hard for you guys to believe right now because I seem so cool and hip and with it. Um, <laughs> but when I was a teenager, I was, I was not, I was a huge computer nerd. I went to computer programming camp 
um, all space camp, all that kind of stuff. And among, you know, I think a certain set of nerdy computer-minded uh, young people, the legend of Alan Turing loomed very large. You know, everyone would always talk about when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, you know, oh, did you know there's this there's this guy and he invented the computer and no one really knows about him and he broke the Nazi Enigma code um, and then he was ended up being persecuted by his own government because he was gay and it was this sort of amazingly um, rich story and ever since I was young I'd, I'd always wanted to write about it um, and then as I as I became a novelist and then started um, working in film it, there had been a lot of great there'd been some great plays written about Alan Turing. There'd been some great novels. There'd been some lots of different material, but it always sort of seemed crazy to me that there was never a feature film. Like if any story, um, if any story is so ideally suited for a feature film, it's the story of Alan Turing. Mm. As, as proud as I am of my own writing on that film, I would have had to be pretty bad to screw that story up, right? I mean, it's so inherently compelling. Um, you, you, you'd really have to, 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 work hard to mess it up yeah but even even with that saying whether it was your words from you know just being a novelist or then transferring into film you have to admit at this point again we're only talking about two films right now in, in essence but obviously like the the creme de la creme pedigree of actors are drawn to perform your words out there i mean granted the, the outfit's a smaller cast but it is led by Mark Rylance, and then looking at the embarrassment, I would say almost of talent that you had performing the imitation game is must feel so good. Oh yeah, it was. I mean, you pinch yourself every day. I mean, to I was so excited that Benedict Cumberbatch was was excited about that part, and it's funny at the time, you know, he was going way back to what did we shoot that in? We shot it in 2013. Um, you know, he had never been the lead of a feature film before. I mean, it was, there, there wasn't, um, he wasn't an unknown, like he'd done Sherlock and he'd done some kind of um, big stuff in the UK, but certainly not an American film. He'd certainly never been the lead of an American film. Um, so it was, I, I think it was really exciting for, for all of us because it felt like he had so much to prove. He had a lot on his shoulders um, when we were shooting that movie. And I certainly had a lot to prove. Um, and I mean, I learned so much from, you know, you get, thrown in a rehearsal room with an actor like Benedict Cumberbatch and suddenly he's saying your dialogue and I'm, you know, doing some of the scenes against him. Um, I, I learned so much from that process um, and seeing, um, you know, the things he could do with, the little things he could do with an eyebrow that I could never do with half a page of monologue. Um, and it's funny, it's certainly something I noticed with with Mark Rylance as well on the outfit that as we were shooting, we certainly found ourselves cutting dialogue much more than adding it. Mm. It's it, it was a lot of like, oh no, I can just look at your face and that is so much more communicative to me than, than any bit of uh, text, however lovely I could write. You know, for me though, I, I you know, everybody's gonna have different reactions. And, you know, because again, an imitation game also, of course, has Kira Knightley, Charles Dance. We can go through the long list, litany of characters in that movie, but Mark Strong, um, I'm obsessed with. And watching the interactions between the two of them, for me, is just a joy. Oh, yeah, I'm so glad you like that. Mark, uh, I adore Mark Strong. Um, 
and he and I think he and Cumberbatch had known each other a really long time um, when they went to shoot Imitation. Um, and I, I, you know, Mark Strong is, he's such a, he's a great actor to work with. Watching him and Cumberbatch play off each other is really fascinating because Mark, Mark Strong is, he's so skilled at what he does and it's so subtle. I mean, he's very small. He doesn't do much. Mm. Um, you, he's very, um, he, he knows how to use the camera very well to his own advantage. So he'll take these long pauses, knowing that you can edit them out if you don't want them. I mean, he knows he's, he's never sort of under this pressure to speed up. It's very gentle. It's very slow. He's aware of where the camera is. It's very kind of expert and precise. Um, and it was funny doing those scenes with him and Cumberbatch because Cumberbatch is so skilled. I've never met two actors I've never met two actors in my life who have the same process. Everyone is such a totally different process. And Mark Strong and, and Benedict Cumberbatch had very different ones. Cumberbatch is really, um, in some way, like me, he's more experimental. He just always tries something different. Every mm. single take is very different. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch I, I, has never delivered the same take twice. I mean, he just, it's, <laughs> he's always just trying something new. Um, and you never quite know what's going to happen. And it's amazing to watch. Um, and to see him sort of do those bits against someone like Mark Strong, who's so measured and specific and figures out exactly what he wants to do. And it can be very chilly, um, but also very wry and very funny. Um, yeah, I remember in that movie, there's this bit where there's one little scene where Mark uh, Strong picks, he's smoking and he picks this little bit of tobacco off of his lip. It's such a little thing, but like, that's how good an actor Mark Strong is that any other actor would have sort of, he, he takes the tobacco off his lip in character. He's not doing it, um, he's not doing it as an actor, he's doing it as the character would. And he's mm. just sort of, some tobacco fell on his lip, so now he's rolling with it. Um, uh, I got to watch, actually, when we were doing Outfit, I got to watch Mark Rylance do something similar to that. Um, you guys are never gonna see it because it's not in the movie, but there was this one take where he was doing a monologue and someone on the crew coughed right in the middle of Mark Rylance's monologue. And it was so, everyone goes like, ah, oh, God, this is, ah, how could you ruin this whole thing? And Mark Rylance says, uh, says sort of like, pardon, are you okay? And does it at, in character. He responds to the cough as if it's another character in the scene coughing and then sort of interacts with it as if um, the person was really there. And he does it all as Leonard in character. It was um, just a brilliant piece of screen acting that, that, Sadly, because of the cough, no one else will ever get to see. Don't tell anybody else about it. That's always. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what our take reels are for. Yeah, yeah our blooper reels that'll it'll go on the, <laughs> uh, the right. Well, even just piggybacking off the whole Mark Strong connection, there's that one scene early on in the film that is just brilliant where uh, Benedict as Allen is like approaching his car. He's like, are you going to London? And he's like, I might be. And then he just hands him the letter and the look on Mark's face where it's like, you know he's just looking at that address and it's like, seriously? And in any other movie, you would have had close up on the address. They would have shown you that just right flat out, but you didn't need that here just because of the strength of your performers and the strength of the material in front of you. Um, well, I appreciate that. And that is a perfect moment to highlight because there was a chunk of dialogue written in that scene after that. I mean, we had, we had, I had written a bit after that. Um, 
And as soon as we saw Mark Strong do it, we all just went, nope. And it cuts there. That's it. (laughs) As soon as you see that look, you know, you don't need, you don't need any more language. How wild of a ride was it to, uh, to not only, you know, your, your, your script landed on the blacklist and then it gets made and then you go to the Academy Awards and then you win the Academy Award. Just how how much of a, a wild ride was that and how did that inform your process sort of going forward? Uh, wild is a good word to use to describe it. It was pretty crazy. And I think in hindsight, I didn't, I was so young and inexperienced that I didn't even realize how crazy it was. Um, you know, there was part of me that sort of went like, oh, I guess this is what happens, right? You just you write a script and then Benedict Cumberbatch wants to do it. And then a year later, you're all the Oscars and uh, someone's handing me a gold trophy and that's just movie making. This is great. Who wouldn't want to do this? Um, I think, you know, it was, it was, it, in some ways it was really overwhelming. Um, Cause the, I mean, when we made that film, it was, um, the budget wasn't big. It was financed completely independently. We didn't have distribution when mm. we shot it. So we just sort of made it and hoped that at some point someone would maybe put it in movie theaters. But, um, you know, uh, I, I remember when we were shooting, our sort of bitter joke would always be like, well, let, let's hope this doesn't just turn into like a masterpiece theater movie of the week. Like if <sighs> PBS buys this, we're really... Um, and, and no diss to PBS. There's a lot of yeah. great stuff on PBS. I just, but you know what I mean? Like that wasn't, that wasn't the sort of thing that we were trying to do. Um, and so when we got, even just getting distribution felt like, oh my God, this is going to be in movie theaters? Really? Uh, and then it sort of for a whole year, every month, there'd be some major stuff like that. Like we're going to premiere at Toronto. Oh my God, that's crazy. Oh my God, we're getting, we're coming out at Thanksgiving that's when lots of people go see movies. That's nuts. That's <laughs> every sort of step of it became this like, uh, wait, really? This is actually happening kind of kind of jump. And it was so, um, it was really lovely. I'm glad we all got to do it together, I would say, because we shot the movie so quickly um, that we didn't, a lot of us sort of didn't actually get that much time to talk to each other while we were making the movie. It wasn't like we were sort of running off the pub every night between, um, between days, like, and especially I think for Cumberbatch, because he had, I mean, he's in, you know, Hmm. nearly every scene of that movie, like Cumberbatch took on a huge, like Mark Reynolds in the outfit. I mean, they both took on these huge, um, heavy blocks of weight of material on their shoulders. Um, And so I, in some ways, the most fun part about the award season kind of process was that then um, we all got to have dinner together a lot and get to like hang out in a way that we never had when we were shooting. Um, and and that was lovely. And then, yeah, look, I, there's, a, there's a gold trophy in my house. And on days when I am staring at a blank screen and everything that I feel like I'm trying to write is coming out terribly and I'm sort of going, gosh, I thought I was supposed to be good at this by now. I thought I was supposed to know what I was doing. I don't seem to, because everything that's, that's coming right now is I'm looking at these words on the page and they're terrible. Um, it is occasionally nice to, to go uh, open up the closet and look at the gold trophy and sort of say like, oh, well, maybe it always feels like this for a while. And if I just keep typing, um, maybe something good will come of it. Well, 
I would love to, we'd love to sit here and just keep talking to you about this. Unfortunately, we have to let you go. Hours. But I, I will say, that, again, going back to your words, because there are certain things that happen in films that when you hear them or see them, they just, they hit you a certain way. And again, not to just take it back to Mark Strong, but in Imitation Game, when he's, Alan, you're exactly the person I thought you would be. That, that's where it hits you. And that's where you're like, we know something's right here. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you love that. Yeah, that was, um, that was, it was one of his more villainous. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Although, but he's also right. I mean, I think we talked about this. Uh, now I'm just uh, going on a tangent here, but I think that was one of, um, in, I, I think if you look at for similarities between Imitation Game and The Outfit, um, and even my novels, you'll find, um, I think about this a lot, in some sense, an absence of real villains. Like there are villains, but is Mark Strong wrong in the imitation game? He, no. he has a point. Yeah. And all he's trying to do is stop the Nazis. Like we're sort of on board with his with his ends, right? Like his ends are actually quite noble. He has the same ends that Alan does. He just has very different means of achieving it. Um, and you know, I think similarly in the outfit, there are certainly villains. Certainly, Johnny Flynn's character is is awfully villainous by the end of the picture. Um, but he's also right about a lot of things, and he's also uh, more honest than maybe any other character in the film. It's a movie where every character is lying to every other character, except for the villain, who's the only <laughs> honest person around. Yeah. <laughs> True. Um, so I, that sort of, uh, you know, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys? Maybe the bad guys have a point is something that I think is very um, fundamental to how I think about all these stories. Well, to close us out with you and on the subject of your words, from a couple of weirdos over here to the weirdo on the other side of the camera, stay weird, stay pleasant, stay safe. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Graham. Oh gosh, thank you both. This has been a delight. Really appreciate it. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Graham Moore, ladies and gentlemen. I, there is, that man is just clockwork but in the most charming way possible. And I'm, no, just, I, I still cannot believe this is his second feature film writing credit and well, his directorial debut. Well, look, yeah, he's, he is a novelist, you know, first and foremost, I guess we should say. So it's not like he's, you know, alien to the word. Oh, um, no. But yeah, I mean, I think for a directorial debut too, this is, you know, because I think a lot of people would say, oh, it takes place in one location. Oh, it's not that tough. It's like, no, 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 no. That's actually tougher. And the things he was able to pull off are pretty impressive, I would say, for a directorial debut, as I mentioned to him during the interview, because this is, this is very slick filmmaking here in the best term you can think of it in. Oh, yes, there is just, there is a gloss to this that in terms of the outfit, it gloss fits because it's all about appearances and image and tailoring or cutting if you will and that's just it's not just beauty for beauty's sake this is very much a condition of the environment and that just makes me love this movie even more yeah this is quickly becoming one of my favorite films of the year too so far oh i can't wait to see it i it's funny because i was uh during the run-up to our interview and the research that i was looking up i saw somewhere that he said that you have to see the movie three times. And I would just like to apologize to Graham Moore. I only watched the movie twice in a row. So I, you know, I felt- I didn't a have short. the opportunity to rewind it. I, I was in the screening room. So I only saw it the one time. Oh yeah. Well, you know, it's a good thing that uh, the outfit will be uh, in theaters 
as of today, because I would, I would take my wife to see this. I would take my family to go see this. I will also say, and this is, I didn't want to say this to Graham directly, but there was one person in my screening who I think he felt like, oh, that's the last line of the movie. Let me get up and walk out. And there was more to be seen. <laughs> so don't think you know when a movie's over until the credits start to roll, people, because somebody screwed up. <laughs> yes, don't assume that you, you have beaten the outfit at its own game because the outfit has tricks. The outfit has just this beautiful labyrinthian gorgeousity to it where you just, you really need to go enjoy this. It is a beautiful mystery, great thriller. Mark Rylance just holds court with such quiet intensity and just is, but, but that's, that's not to say that the cast isn't brilliant. It's just, he gets to be the odd duck out of place. And then everyone else's universe around him sparkles even greater because of the fact that he's at the center sort of navigating this whole thing. Yeah, and it's it's, it's so strange too, because I, I, I often think about, you know, most people may know this about me already, that I am very particular in what I like. And I think a lot of stuff that everybody loves is maybe not as good as they make it out to be. But this is the one film that's that's coming out nowadays that really, and I, maybe it was because I wasn't expecting anything because that's why I, I try so hard to go into stuff. But like, I agree with everybody else and everybody else agrees with me, which I think speaks volumes for how good this movie is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I was, uh, I think the buzz started when this, I think it premiered at the Berlin Film Festival. I, and I like buzz, start, buzz started to trickle in. And now, you know, it's, I really haven't heard an ill word spoken against this film. And again, Casting Mark Rylance is like a good, that's just a solid investment to get this whole thing going to begin with. Much like casting Benedict Cumberbatch was a great investment for the imitation game. Although that was more uh, the direct, um, Morden Tildum, I believe is, yeah, is the director, that, yes. I don't know if that's, I, I would imagine that's also the correct pronunciation. Yes, that was more Morden Tildum's choice. But still, that's another movie where you cast the wrong person as Turing you lose so much of what this film is supposed to be about. Yeah, and you know, as much as I actually really do love The Imitation Game, because I do, I think The Imitation Game is a film that um, just, I remember when I first saw it, and I was, it was at a screening for, you know, at, uh, back when Magna was still open. And, um, uh, yeah, I know. Uh, Magna Vision. But, um, and I remember walking out of it going like, oh, that was all right, but not really feeling the effects as much as when I said it the second time. And I know a lot of people are going to, I know there is a strong grouping of people who want to complain that they think they gave too much credit to Turing in terms of winning the war. Like, they, like it felt like it was taken away from the actual soldiers. And I get that in a certain sense, but it's also this idea of, you know, having to be open to these new ideas for, you know, what is capable for what the human mind could create and, and build um, that that is more important to the story than trying to argue who did more. Well, that's another reason why I think The Imitation Game is one of those best, one of those best picture nominees, but also one of those war movies that should be held in higher regard because most of the time we like to focus on the militaristic aspect of World sure. War II any conflict and there's you know there is great gains and great sacrifice made 
in that field and by no means should that be written off yeah but over time it just gets to the point where we've seen some of these events and some of these same things covered so much that it just kind of loses impact whereas there is this wonderful blend of this and it happens early on like you see them while they're trying to break the enigma cipher you're still getting instances of combat peppered here and there like you know u-boat attacks and all these other things the human cost of the war is still very much in the frame it's just that the focus is put on turing himself and how he and his cohorts basically had to work together to make it happen um what i also thought was funny not funny but i also think it's interesting because i didn't get to talk about it with graham because we were time limited as you're also because you also have to boil parts of the story down into their own little pieces. And what's brilliant is the conversation between Turing and the cop played by Rory Keener, who t originally arrests him for what he thinks is a break-in, which is kind of going over the idea of the imitation game, but by him telling him his story and Keener re realizing at the very end that it's not right to do certain things to Turing not you know after learning what what he did because it's it, it just boils down perfectly that idea of even if we were talking about the soldiers the things that have to be done in certain states of the time to you know overcome a great evil are not going to be easily weighed in your mind um and so like that's another great thing that the, the movie like has going for itself because even if you're not going to talk directly about the soldiers, it still fits in if you want to make the allegory one way or the other. I also, I apologize, I'm going rambling, but I do want to point out that it wasn't until getting ready for this. And because, I, you know, Rory Keener is, is, is an actor who I've seen all over the place. And I love everything he kind of does, but I never realized he's Roy Keener's son. Yeah. And for people who don't know Roy Keener, they almost easily know him as Veruca Salt's dad from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And oh, I'm like, right. oh my God. <laughs> I can't believe it. And for most of you out there, Rory Keener, it's Keener? Uh, well, I, 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 I say Keener, but it, 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 I think it's um, Keener. I can't pronounce I'm probably not pronouncing it wrong. I apologize, all their family. Well, Rory was also, uh, he was more recently known as Tanner in the, uh, the Daniel Craig era of James Bond films. I mean, there's a lot of stuff people are going to know him. Oh, yeah. No, he's, he was also in a, I still need to watch the HBO adaptation of The Constant. No, not The Constant Gardener. That's a different movie. That should probably go on the list, too. That, is, that um, should very much be on the list. The Casual Vacancy. That's what I was thinking of. Look, everybody's going to know. If you've watched anything that comes out of Britain in the past 10 years, you've seen him. You know, for, unfortunately for a lot of people, he's going to be Black Mirror's prime minister who fucked a pig in the first episode. True. But, you know. Uh, oh, oh, he is now a foppish. Uh, he is now a foppish captain on uh, Our Flag is Death. Our Flag means death. Oh, I haven't watched it yet. I haven't watched it yet. He's in the first episode and he's Reese Darby's uh, uh, boarding school enemy. And he, this is probably the most relaxed and most silly I've seen him get to be. And it's like, good for you, man. I've seen you do so much serious stuff that it's like. Well, that's you can see him do so much. He's, he's, he really is, he's a hidden gem, I think, even though he's everywhere. Oh yeah. Just he's a lot more powerful than people give him credit for, I say. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. That's my that's my that's my diatribe there. No, I mean you really look at the. This is again. This is another stacked cast. I mean Charles Dance is in here. Matthew Good, Alan Leach from Downton Abbey. Uh, of course, Kira Knightley, Mark Strong, Mark Strong. Oh, how could we ever forget Mark Strong? 
considering how much we gushed over him in that in that interview. Mark Strong is, is, is somebody, again, also very similar. Like a lot of people just used to seeing him as a kind of like run-of-the-mill bad guy kind of stuff, even though they've seen him do a lot of stuff. Yeah. And he's he's way too good to be sleeping on for anybody. Oh, absolutely. Uh, just He's also just a delight to talk to if you ever get to talk to him. I'm dying to. He's so, I got to talk to him for Shazam and he was just so awesome. Mark, and just come on the podcast, man. We got to talk uh, about the guard or something. I was going to say, what would we bring him on for the podcast? Because there's so many things. He has a lot of stuff. I mean, I think, I mean, again, because I, I talk about the guard a lot, but the guard was the first time, even though I, I, I liked him for a long time, the guard was the first time where I'm like, man, this guy is something like something else. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but the imitation game is... Um, I deserve, I think it deserved that award. You know, and again, I think awards are kind of not, I'm not saying they're stupid, silly, they don't mean anything. But Sometimes like, I they're think, very political. Well, I think people who say, because some, something won an award is a validation, I, think, I don't think it does. But in the same breath, when there are certain things that deserve that validation and the award kind of goes to it, I will, I will you know, praise it for that. And I, I think it deserved it. And uh, it's one of the few in the last, uh, you know, somewhat years that I do agree with on a, on a high basis. No, I mean, this was a long journey for, for Graham from the blacklist to getting into production to, well, not that long, but it was like, like maybe a couple of years in between, but still blacklist, getting into production, winning the Oscar. It's just, as, as he told us, it's a ride. Yeah. And it is a ride well worth taking. Uh especially because knowing how the story ends, the way that they visually represented, I thought that still st stays with me from the first time I watched it because I saw this back in the, back in the era where uh, before I was even professionally writing for uh, cinema, before I was writing for Cinema Blend, uh, before I was professionally a entertainment journalist and sort of doing it more on an amateur mm. end, my friends and I would go to AMC for the Best Picture Showcase. And we would go see all of them in a, in like a weekend or two weekends. Gotcha. And this was like, I, I still remember there was, there was also I think a bit of a kerfluffle the way that they were marketing the movie. Cause I still remember they were handing out these programs and it has like Benedict Cumberbatch's Alan Turing on it. And it says, honor the man, honor the film, or maybe it was the other way around. <laughs> but uh, considering the production company that distributed this, you can kind of see why the tactics were a little bit um, heavy handed. Well, I don't mean to. I don't mean to uh, go off that point a little bit, but I should. I forgot, and I just remembered it because you reminded me of it. Because talking about the cast again, this is also the first place I ever saw Alex Lawther, who I think, for people who don't know him, he's he's the biggest. I mean, he's been a lot of stuff now, but he's the biggest up and comer in my mind that people got to be paying attention to. Because after this, I thought, you know, like okay, he's just some kid they kind of got, and he, he can act a little awkwardness but then i saw him in some stuff after uh, and people will know him maybe if they watch the end of the fucking world on netflix he's in that but i saw him in ghost stories man this kid is and people may, people may remember him uh uh most recently because in um even though apparently nobody saw it because they're millennials according to uh um, um ridley scott but he he was king charles in the last duel uh, and he's just so fucking good, this kid. And he's not a kid anymore. I mean, he's, he's still young. He but was he's, really good in the last... Oh, him and Ben Affleck were probably two of the best parts of that movie. 
Well, I, dude, he is so like, I've seen him do some crazy stuff now. And I'm like, he's the person you got to watch. He's those stories with uh, Martin Freeman, yes. right? Yeah. I yeah. The anthology based on the play. Yeah. I still need to catch that one. He, oh, dude, he's so good in that. I mean, he's only good. Everybody's only got short little parts. It's an anthology movie. He's so good. Um, those are the type of actors that I really glom onto. It's like the Rory Kinnears or the Alex Walthers or, you know, or the Mark Rylances where it's like, yeah, they are so honed at what they do that you can put them in anything and you know, they're going to kill. It's well, just, they, yeah. I mean, they're character actors who really can, should, and do get the leading roles. They don't happen all the time, but they should. No, absolutely. I mean, character actors they are the overdue rent they are overdue actors in the overdue rentals universe <laughs> they're the overdue rentals of people there we go we we eventually got there they're the overdue rentals of people that should be we should have somehow have a t-shirt with that on it <laughs> character just have a picture of a character your favorite character actor you can choose who it is and it'll say character actors they're the overdue rentals of people <laughs> i don't know how that will go i don't know how that will go over <laughs> i guess we'd have to talk to the actors first Probably for likeness rights too. Oh, well, we won't sell them, I guess. You know, we'll just—I uh, don't know. We'll find a way around it. You know, or we just have the T-shirt that says it. We don't have to have images with it. If you—if you want—if you, want, you want a T-shirt that says "Character Actors," uh, they're the overdue rentals of people. Please send us an email at uh, the overdue rentals at gmail.com and let us know. Or if you have any other merch ideas, really. I mean, we would like to start to—you know—have people show off their fandom. You know, we're—we're we're important. We're a podcast. Oh, I just had a good idea. We'll talk about it later. Everybody oh. sit and wait for this one to come out. We can't give the, we can't give it all away here, folks. That's just these are secrets. Secrets need to be kept. Secrets need to be revealed at the right time. And if anyone knows that, it's Graham Moore who unintentionally gave us a double feature of secret decoding and knowing who to trust and when. So even though it should be secret. Uncover those secrets. Go cross the imitation game off your overdue rentals list. Make sure you're checking out the outfits starting today. If you're listening to this on March 18th, if you're listening to it on March 19th, yesterday. Well, still today. I mean, it would still be any point after the 18th until pulled. Yeah, but seriously, go check out the outfit. This is look. This isn't just oh, we're promoting a movie. It's like no, this was something that. I, I still remember messaging you the day I watched it. And it's like, I think I really dug the outfit. And you're like, oh yeah, me too. And then it's like, oh great, we're gonna we're gonna have great talks about this. Except at that point it was the outlet. So maybe oh. we're on the wrong movie. Oh, so I know the outfit. That's right. The outfit people. Sorry, not the outlet. I, we keep doing it. We're just gonna have a make a movie called the outfit or the outlet. Try to get it wrong, right? And you write righted it wrong. Well, Mike, people know where to email us now, but where else can they find us? Well, that's a good question because unlike the outfit, we don't have a Dropbox in Chicago that you can just slip mail into and communicate from Coney Island to Santa Barbara. Uh, we have the internet and the internet has wonderful platforms. And to that point, you can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show. You can find us on Twitter at Rentals Overdue. You can find us on Facebook at Overdue Rentals. Yes, it is a bit to keep in, uh, keep track of, but you know, until we can really buy our name out on all these platforms, that's just the way it is. We're worth finding. And if you want to continue to find us, should this have been just, you stumbled upon us because you're a Graham Moore enthusiast and why wouldn't you be? You can find us 
wherever you ethically source your fine podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, still waiting on that ham radio enthusiast to, to get us out into the, the atmosphere. Uh, but wherever you do find us, rate, review, and subscribe so we can keep the rental counter open. We can ditch the stale popcorn for something a little fresher, and we can just keep the show going because you know what? We like you. Today's temperature was sunny, around 60 degrees here in New York City. Bright and bright and shiny. Good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.